Hi, and welcome to the Circle of Film Podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into my top 10 new April films in today's episode. What's this? What's this? The simply sensational standing ovation of Royal Dalton Musical. What is this? back a little bit fell behind just a couple of couple of days um not too bad i hope uh top 10 films uh that i watched for the first time in april that is what we're going to talk about today uh it is the reason the del- for the delay is primarily because it took me this long to put all of my april movies onto letterboxd and get all the data into my spreadsheet everything is behind but uh that's trying to catch up and I'm making slow and and hopefully steady progress um so this is Monday's episode now ideally I will have uh the scavenger hunt review episode on Friday and we'll go from there so uh some of these movies will overlap with the scavenger hunt uh in fact I think about half of them are from the scavenger hunt which uh, you know, is what it's is what it's going to be, and I'll make that episode a little bit faster than it otherwise would have been. I'll spend a little more time on them, talking about those movies t- today. Um, but there's a couple that fell outside of the scavenger hunt, and uh, we'll talk about those as well. So, top ten films that I saw for the first time in April 2020, starting right now. Number 10, the film that I saw April 4th, 2020. It's 119 minutes long. It is from 1977. My brief summary, four men transport dangerous chemicals across hazardous terrain. I gave it a 71. It has a 79% on Rotten Tomatoes. And that is Sorcerer. Uh, Sorcerer is a remake of another film, which is temporarily evaded my memory but it is the wages of fear sorcerer is directed by william friedkin starring roy scheider among others um really don't recognize any of the names in this except for roy scheider william friedkin of course director of the exorcist the french connection uh, to live or die to live and die in la killer joe uh rules of engagement among you know he's got a lot of lot of movies in this in his filmography and some pretty good ones uh, and I think Sorcerer ranks up there as well. Uh, this is definitely, you know, a favorite of some. And I liked it. I, I think, you know, I, I'm, you know, obviously I'm comparing it against The Wages of Fear. And I do think it ends up being a little bit better. I think it gives us more character. I think the drama is a little more heightened in Sorcerer than it was in Wages of Fear. Uh, but both films uh, really excel at tension. They excel at tension. They excel at suspense. Uh, you know, and, and it's very easy to, you know, see the similarities between the two movies. You know, beyond just the plot, you know, a lot of the scenes and, and even a, some framing at, at times is almost identical. But I think Friedkin is able to capture the film in, in just a little more of a, of a raw way for my, my taste. And... I, I think that ultimately puts it just a little bit above uh, Wages of Fear for me. 
I think I gave Widgets of Fear a very high 60s score and, and Sorcerer getting a very low 70s score. There's not a huge difference, uh, but, uh, you know, one's in almost entirely in a foreign language and the other one is Sorcerer. So if, if that's an issue, if that's a barrier to entry, uh, you know, definitely check out Sorcerer uh, because you'll get mostly the same experience. But I do think it is, it is I think it's worth watching the two of them. Uh, especially if you like the first one you see, uh, just to see, it's kind of like a rewatch, but also you get a little bit of a different take, and if you watched Wages of Fear, I think you'll watch be watching a little bit of a better movie the second time around. Uh, Roy Scheider, really good in this, uh, as the only big name actor, and from, from, me, from my perspective, uh, I think he does a really good job of, of not taking over the movie too much, you know, if you make this movie with like a Leonardo DiCaprio, I think it becomes a Leonardo DiCaprio movie, and Roy Scheider doesn't have that issue. He very much can kind of uh, sort of disappear into a role, and you know doesn't really have a star status uh, aura about him. And I think that really helps in a movie that's trying to be as uh, gritty and and intense as Sorcerer is. So my number ten with a 71 is Sorcerer. Number nine, film I saw April 9th, 2020. It is 141 minutes long. It is from 1961. My brief summary, years after performing the robbery, a bank robber goes after his partner who turned him in. Gave this a 72. It has a 56% on Rotten Tomatoes. And this is One-Eyed Jacks. One-Eyed Jacks, directed by Marlon Brando, starring Marlon Brando and Carl Malden, among others. And it's it's too long. All right, first first thing out of the gate, it is it is too long, but there are a lot of really exciting dynamics going on in this movie that I really responded to. Uh, Brando and Malden are fantastic, and the the relationship between the two of these characters. Uh, is is really complex and presented in a way that is as long as the movie is it still manages to continue to un- unravel more and more layers as the film progresses it helps that they're both you know acting at the top of their games and uh, the movie is able to despite its length um <laughs> Give us enough of a payoff every so often, uh, enough, uh, you know, a big reveal that kind of answers a couple of questions, a big reveal and answers a couple more questions as we sort of build to the to the to the ultimate climax. And so, I, you know, Brando's direction is is spotty, but I think the the, the performances and the 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 themes and message within the movie uh really are able to shine through and, and as, as much as I, I think he he has trouble uh structuring the film as a you know to make it more cinematic i do think he's able to really get at the essence of what this movie is about and, and who these characters are and and what they mean to each other what they mean to uh to the world around them and, and how we as the viewer interpret them um, so for all of its perhaps shortcomings and, and it's a very raw, rough movie, I think it still ends up being, 
uh, a really well presented presented maybe that's not the right word uh, a well not crafted but but um hmm what is the word i'm looking for it still manages to elicit a response uh in a, in a really successful way is i guess how i want to phrase it so one-eyed jacks my number nine from april my with a score of 72 overall number eight it's an april film i uh the most recent film i've seen out of this list i saw it april 20th it is 92 minutes long it is from 2019 my summary a newly pregnant housewife is compelled to consume inedible objects gave this a 73 it has a 90 percent on rotten tomatoes and this is swallow if you're not familiar with swallow it's directed by carlo Mir- mirabella davis uh, i have seen one other film of his and i think he only has one other film really uh, he's got one other feature film uh, and that is the swell season which is a documentary uh, about the making of the film once um and and the relationship between the characters uh, the, the actors in that movie swallow is a very very different movie from the swell season uh Haley bennett stars as hunter who is the titular newly or is not titular as the newly pregnant housewife i mentioned earlier and slowly begins to swallow various things she finds around the house that range from the inane to the highly dangerous and everything that follows sort of uh, unfolds from there so it's you know trip to the hospital it's you know reaction from friends family doctors it's uh you know reckoning with it uh in your own mental state how does this impact your life uh because you know it's going to have a huge ripple effect um you know if you're pregnant and swallowing things that could harm the baby that could harm yourself uh you know it's it's a really terrifying uh situation not only for uh you know her her immediate you know her husband and and so on but for anyone really in the vicinity that that you know cares about her health and so the movie what i really appreciate is it really tries to get at why uh someone would do this and i think there's a really interesting uncovering i suppose as 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 the film progresses to to really get at why she's doing this how it impacts uh, you know what 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 would drive her to do it um what it what doing it uh says about her and, and what her mental state becomes as she continues and you know you kind of you know we uncover more and more information as the film progresses and it's laid out and, and presented in a way that maybe, you know, never, never justifies what's happening, but it at least explains it. And man, it is a pretty brutal, brutal depiction. And I think Haley Bennett gives an incredible performance. She's really great. Uh, but this is a very difficult film to watch uh, a lot. So take that with a grain of salt if you check it out. Uh, so that is my number eight 
swallow with a 73. Number seven. It's a film I saw April 6th. It is 107 minutes long. It is from 1994. My summary, a nurse travels to Cape Verde with a comatose man to return him home. Gave it a 77. It has no score in Rotten Tomatoes. And it is called Casa de Lava. Uh, Casa de Lava, directed by Pedro Costa, starring Isaac de Banco, Inez de Medeiros, among others. Um, man, is a, is a foreign language film. It, it is in Portuguese. Uh, the, al- the alternative title to the film is Down to Earth. Uh, Pedro Costa is the only film of his I've seen, and uh, not even one of his five most popular on Letterboxd. But I was kind of taken by this. It's it's very small. It's, it's very um, reserved, and it really hinges on your response to Mariana. Mariana who is played by Inez de Medeiros. Uh, Isaac DeBankel, probably the biggest name for anybody in this. You may have seen him in Casino Royale or Black Panther or Ghost Dog, Calvary, Coffee and Cigarettes, Shaft, uh, the new one, uh, Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Uh, he's, you know, he's been in some more popular English language movies. Don't think anyone else in this movie has, but Medeiros is the primary performer in this film. She is the lead and uh, Bankol is supporting. And her journey um, is a very simple one. You know, the movie doesn't have a huge overarching plot. It's not very dramatic. Uh, it's a beautiful looking film that is a little more introspective and just kind of slice of life uh, almost. And of course, you know, the life being a nurse uh, accompanying you know, a comatose patient uh, back to his home. It's kind of a dramatic situation, but the film doesn't make it that big of a, not that huge of an issue. It's not the focal point of the movie that he's comatose. The focal point is this journey, this this undertaking, the traveling, the relationships that they have with each other, uh, that they have uh, with the people around them. And you know, it's it's very abstract in that way. And I really responded to it. I, I wasn't sure I was going to, uh, but I think the grounding performance that Medeiros gives uh, goes a long way and uh, is, is really the reason for why I enjoyed this movie so much. Um, and it's uh, the only thing I've ever seen her in. Uh the only film on Letterboxd that is slightly more popular is Osos that she's in, and she's practically uncredited. Uh, it's another Pedro Costa film, though, so he must have seen something he liked in her. Even though three years later, she went from being a lead to effectively, uh, you know, an extra. Not quite an extra, necessarily. I don't know. I didn't see the movie, but her film her film role is credited as whore. And uh, she's like 10th build. So take it as you want. Uh, Casa de Lava. The cinematography is gorgeous. The, the on-site um, images are just you know, the mountains, the rolling hills. It Cape Verde looks incredible. Uh, it, it's so gorgeous. And the film captures that 
those images and and their relation to the struggles that the characters are dealing with the the thoughts and and uh mental gymnastics that they're kind of doing as they're going through this uh you know very unique situation and i i i found it to be really engaging uh, a lot more than i really expected to to be honest um so my number seven and i i recommend it is casa de lava portuguese film uh with a 77 77 number six is a film i saw april 2nd it is 66 minutes long shortest film on this top 10 it is from 1926 also the oldest film from this top 10 my summary an honorable prince must defeat a wicked sorcerer to win the heart of a princess i gave it a 77 it has 100 percent on rotten tomatoes and this is the adventures of prince ahmed Prince Ahmed, The Adventures Thereof, uh, believed to be the earliest feature-length animated film or, or one of the earliest animated films. Um, it, you know, in 1926, if it's not the first, it's one of the first. It's, it's a beautiful-looking movie. Uh, it's German. I found... So to watch this, I found a copy of it online streaming that did not have subtitles and I also found a copy of the subtitles as like a text document or like as on a web page basically a pdf and so I had to read the subtitles and and such while I was watching the movie um but it was just man uh, you know it's it's the story of Aladdin and also the story of Prince Ahmed and also there's a story of with a magical horse and there's a beautiful princess and there's a demon and a sorcerer. There's a lot going on in this movie and it happens really, really quickly. And it's amazing when you think about Aladdin is part of this movie to a degree. Obviously not all the elements in Aladdin are in the adventures of Prince Ahmed, but it's, it's still a, a movie that you know, compared to say something like uh, One-Eyed Jacks, in less than half the time it has you know two or three times the plot, and it does it in an animated film from the 1920s without spoken dialogue uh, is is pretty remarkable. Even before you factor in that it's a good story, it's a compelling story, and one that really lends itself well to the type of animation so it's done using a silhouette technique uh, so it's not hand drawn in the same way it's used like cardboard cutouts um, almost like shadows on on a on the back of a of a screen and I I don't know I, I think it might be tough to track down uh, it's not an easy to to obtain film I think it used to be on a streaming service. I don't think it is right now. Uh, but there's just so much to watch and there's so much inside of this movie that it's, I think, very unlikely that someone could come away from it without some enjoying at least part of it. 
whether that's Aladdin to the magic battle, which is really fun, uh, the flying horse, uh, or, or just, you know, the love story between Prince Ahmed and the princess, it, it barrels through plot points and uh, you just kind of try to, you know, hope you can hang on as it, as it carries you away. And uh, I found it to be a, a really exciting and really enjoyable. Really, really. So based on the stories from the Arabian Nights, that is The Adventures of Prince Ahmed, my number six from April with a 77. Number five, <clears throat> number five, I saw it April 3rd, and it is 201 minutes long. It is the longest film on this list at three hours and 20 minutes. It's from 1975. My summary, a widowed housewife looks after her son, tidies her house, and turns tricks on the average, in the average day. I gave this a 78. It has a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. <clears throat> and this is Jean Dielman, 23, Quad de Commerce, 1080 Brussels. <clears throat> Maybe pronouncing that uh, potentially incorrectly, as it is a French film, uh, but that is what it looks like to me. It is directed by Chantal Ackerman, stars Delphine Seyrig, among others, but not many others. It's mostly Delphine Seyrig. She is the titular uh, Jean Dielman, and it is pretty much what I described. We follow her through three days. Uh, each day is roughly the same length of time from uh, in the film, uh, and we see her taking care of her apartment, looking after her teenage son, and uh, turning a trick uh, to make ends meet. It is what she does. And I've known about this movie for quite some time. It kind of has a reputation. It is the 115th highest rated film on Letterboxd at the moment. <clears throat> Narrative film, excuse me. It is on the Criterion channel to view. Uh, it has a 4.2 average rating. So, uh, you know, a lot of people are very, very positive about this movie. I'm very positive about this movie. I uh, did not... I, I didn't love it, to be clear. Uh, I, as you can expect, it is incredibly slow. But the film itself is just... I, I, I think it's a technical... Marvel. I think, uh, you know, watching it a second, third, fourth time, which, uh, you know, is a lot of time to commit to this movie. But I expect, you know, there are so many little intricate details, subtle nuances uh, that you could pick apart and, and, and analyze again and again and again. Um, you know, we get to see this routine three times and we get to look at the, the slow unraveling of this woman and and how her routine falls apart we get to see what i don't know just like when you go through your own routine you know you wake up in the morning you go to the bathroom you brush your teeth you go out into the kitchen you pour yourself a glass of you know water milk whatever orange juice uh you you make scrambled eggs and then you know you go and you put on your clothes and you put on your deodorant and you know, you got to feed the cat or the dog or, you know, steps A through Z, the whole list. And 
you know, sometimes, you know, things don't go right. Sometimes you skip a step. Sometimes you forget. Sometimes you're just not thinking. Sometimes, uh, you know, you, you have bigger bigger fish to fry. And, and this is such a really focal, zeroed-in look at those moments. Those, you know, wow, I... You know, you realize, you know, halfway through the afternoon, like, oh my gosh, I never X, right? And, you know, that that moment doesn't really happen in this movie, but the, the notion of like, oh, she didn't, you know, it happens for the viewer. Like, oh my gosh, she didn't whatever. Uh, and seeing, you know, the, the care and meticulousness that, you know, she exhibits in the first presentation of her daily routine and contrasting it against the final presentation of her routine and and the way that it and the the result there is is striking but not because everything is happening in the exact opposite way not because nothing is happening not because you know she's a completely different person but because because of the way it's shot because of the attention to detail because of the performance from Sayri you you pick up on every single distinct change you know it's it's even something as simple as oh wow the post-it note she used today is blue not yellow you know something that small of a detail but it it it, it kind of it, it hits with a bang in a movie like this and the way that this is presented Beyond that, the actual plot, the actual unraveling itself and, and, and how that happens and why it happens and, and what takes place, uh, I really liked. Um, I do think it's a little subtle. I think, you know, that's kind of the movie's ideas. It's, it's very subtle. It's very, um, very careful. And I don't know. I, I think if I watched this again... I could appreciate it even more, but I do like it. I do appreciate it now, and I think that Delphine Seyrig is is phenomenal. Um, you know, this is the kind that one of those movies where it falls apart without your lead. You know, giving a, a career best type of performance, and she absolutely does. Uh, if you know, she's I, I've seen her in a couple of films, not a ton. Um, but she was also in Last Year at Marianne Bad, uh, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, and Stolen Kisses are the other three films of hers I've seen. Uh, actually, four now, five now. I, I Just yesterday, I watched another film that she's in, uh, Donkey Skin. So, uh, yeah, that's... She's great. Uh, I really liked Chantel Ackerman's uh, direction. I think the movie is long, but it it's not for the faint of heart. And when I say that, I mean... if. If you're not really looking into um, the sort of c a cinematic experience, a unique cinematic experience, I don't think this will really do it for you. It doesn't have action. It doesn't have, you know, a lot of plot. Um, it's a very slow-moving mo movie and a very repetitive movie. And uh, it surely isn't for everyone. So, Jean Dielman, 23, Quad Commerce, 1080 Brussels, is my number five.
Number four. Number four is a film I've already talked about, so I won't spend too long on it. I watched it April 14th. It's 96 minutes long. It's a 2020 film. My summary, two girls travel to New York City seeking medical help. Gave it an 84. It has a 99% on Rotten Tomatoes. And this is never, rarely, sometimes, always. I did talk about this on a review episode already. Um, so you can check that out uh, if you want a little more detail. <clears throat> Excuse me, detail. I don't go into any spoilers and then probably even less spoilers than you know, the average IMDb plot synopsis would, would, would have. Uh, but I think it's a really engaging movie. It's, it's very low budget, but it looks clean. It looks, you know, it's kind of a Florida project feel to it at times. And I just, I really like the performances. I really like the story. I like the characters. I like the relationship between, um, the two girls uh, in the movie as well. And and it has one of my favorite scenes of the year uh, so far in the titular scene, um, the scene where the, the title of the movie really comes into play. Uh, never, rarely, sometimes, always. Uh, so it is on streaming now. If you are interested, definitely check it out. Uh, if there's nothing that's been on, if you haven't, if you've been waiting for a good movie uh, this year and uh, with theaters closed, can't, haven't, haven't had one, uh, check it out. It's on Amazon. You can uh, rent it there. Directed by Eliza Hittman, starring Sidney Flanagan, Talia Ryder, Theodore per- Pellerin, and Sharon Van Etten, among others. So, never rarely, sometimes always. My number four, with an 84. Number three, the top three, all foreign language films. Uh, number three, uh, I saw April 7th. It is 147 minutes long is from 1964. My summary, while on vacation, an entomologist ends up trapped in a sand pit. I gave an 84. It has a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, actually, this should be number four. Shouldn't it? Mathematically speaking. Yeah. Um, all right, well, this should be number four. Never rarely, sometimes always should be number three based on tiebreaker rules. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, this is Woman in the Dunes. Woman in the Dunes. Uh, if you're, I think it's a fairly familiar title. Uh, it's one I've been aware about for a while, but just didn't get around to watching until The Scavenger Hunt. It is directed by Hiroshi Teshigahara, and uh, is his most accomplished, well-known film, uh, as far as I can tell. He's got a couple of the big name, big ones, like The Face of Another. Uh, it stars Eiji Okada, Kyoko Kishida, among others. And this is ranked 37 on Letterboxd's all-time top 250 narrative films. It is on the Criterion channel. I believe you can also rent it on Amazon. It has a 4.4 average rating, which is pretty insane. Uh, Very highly rated film. And I will say, I think this is... great movie um looking through a lot of the reviews on letterboxd you know i i think it's a little i'm not as passionate about it as as a lot of these other people are but uh, i will definitely go to bat for this movie it primarily deals with uh torture uh both of the physical mental uh of the psychological of the sexual um it it's a very devastating type of movie. Uh, I believe Criterion Channel has a couple of 
uh, audio essays about the movie. I listened to one after watching it uh, because it's it's really exciting. It's really engrossing. It's a very unique film. It's kind of a premise that feels like it should only care, you know, be able to hold about thirty minutes of your of your attention. And this thing goes on for over two hours, and it is haunting. It is it is uh, devastating. It is um, painful as well. It is unrelenting. Uh, the woman in the or woman in the dunes, uh, the titular you know the titular woman is this. She kind of stuck in this sand pit. You know the walls are too high. The sand caves in. She cannot climb her way out. Uh, and even if she were to climb her way out, there is a tribe of of people living in this seaside village who are holding her captive and they trick this entomologist guy into going down in there uh, for the night and he's stuck there he cannot get back out and they kind of force them to do labor uh, of various kinds and uh, and many other things uh, you know it, it goes a lot further beyond uh, simple capture and labor and and what it what is so i think fascinating about this movie is how utterly hopeless it is uh, and i say that as a good thing it's a positive critique uh because you know you can you can look at it a lot of different ways and interpret it a lot of different ways but i think the the kind of uniting aspect to every interpretation is hopelessness uh you know you you look at and and feel these many many acts of depravity um you know with these stellar with the great movie great performances you know from the entire cast and and because of that you can feel how futile their every movement is their every action and and ultimately their every thought that is that is the the linchpin Okay, it's, you know, if you're tied up, you know, you struggle, you struggle, you struggle, but eventually you realize you're not going to be able to break the ropes that are, you know, binding you. Okay, physically, you have given up. Uh, and then, you know, if you're stuck in that position for long enough, you know, eventually you, you, your mental state will break down. Mentally, you will not be able to continue. And I think it's, you know, you know, it's, it's, it's that point, it's that breaking point that, you know, it, it, it feels like, you know, when you, when you first, for anyone who, you know, who, who's never felt anything remotely like that, which I would hope is most people, uh, you just, you can't fathom a, a situation where everything you physically try to do, you can't. Everything you think you, you is futile. Everything you say is futile. Every, every mo action, everything is futile, and and yet this is this is that move. This is the movie that gives us this. It presents this scenario, and you just watch it, and 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 time is so slow, and the film languishes in the pain and and suffering of its characters, to a point where you know it's not fun to watch you, you don't enjoy this movie you don't 
you know, and, and and even what it's saying, even what it's communicating to the viewers, it's not a fun thing. It's not an informative thing. It's just this endless hopelessness. And you just, I don't know, you, you, you can't avoid the inevitability of it all. And I, I think I love the I, this this psychological character study. Uh, I love the realization when we get to it in the film of you know this is you know you break down you know this this is a type of situation that breaks a person down uh, to their very core, and they do things they would never otherwise do. They commit acts they would never otherwise commit. Say things they would never never otherwise say. And they are a person they would never otherwise be. And so it is a long movie, but it kind of needs that. It needs that length for you to feel the futility. And I think Teshikihara um, encapsulates it almost perfectly. It is a very, very difficult-to-stomach movie. And um, it's, it's a great one, though but it's but it's it's really great and uh worth checking out if you can uh if if you haven't so my number three slash four uh in this instance this will be ac- officially number four of april woman in the dunes with an 84 number three would have been never really sometimes always which brings us to our number two runner-up this is not not a uh scavenger hunt film I saw this April 14th. It is from 20 uh it is from 1960. It is 111 minutes long. My brief summary, a woman faces challenges as she tries to get out of debt and make a living for herself. I gave this an 85 as a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes and it is when a woman ascends the stairs. So this is another Japanese film. Um, this one is directed by Mikio Naruse, stars, starring uh, Hideko Takamine, Masayuki Mori, Reiko Dan, and Tatsuya Nakadai, among others. Nakadai, of course, one of my favorite actors and my number one actor overall at the moment. Uh, Mikio Naruse, who's, uh, this is the only film of his I've seen. It's his most popular and most well-regarded as far as I'm aware. Uh, but he does have many, many, many other movies um and and this one is uh but this is this is probably where this is where i started out for him i haven't seen anything else since then but this is probably where most people start out with him uh when a woman ascends the stairs is also on criterion channel if you are so inclined and here's here's how it how it works um keiko played by hideko takamine is 30 she's a widow and she is a hostess, and she narrates this story of herself, and she describes um, this vicious cycle of, I guess it's not unfair to call it oppression, but the title of the movie, When a Woman Ascends the Stairs, is you know, a metaphor for women rising above their, you know, the, their quote-unquote perceived station in life. Uh, whether that is uh, whether that station is perceived by a man, 
uh, by society, which is generally male, and uh, you know, or a third something else. Uh, especially in 1960 and 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 many times uh, for a long time before then, you know, the the idea of the glass ceiling is still around. It's still here. There are still things women have never done because there's a perceived ceiling above them and because other people are actively working against them. This movie uh, epitomizes that. It shows Keiko, Keiko, who is trying to rise above her station, who is trying, she is a smart, confident woman um, who knows what she wants in life and unfortunately it just isn't that easy because she's a woman um you know she's at this kind of crossroads where she wants a life that she's earned and she's trying to set herself up in a situation where she can earn that life and every time she tries um you know she is restricted and oppressed by some aspect of the patriarchy and it does not doesn't matter um doesn't matter what she does how she does it and and i guess the the sort of beating drum at the bottom of this movie at the background in the background of this movie is what choices does she really have and and that is heartbreaking heartbreaking and and because she has so many you know all of these limitations all of these restrictions all of this oppression isn't even real right it's it's manufactured by society by men uh it's it's its imposition is a fallacy. It's fabricated. And yet, it's still happening. And, and it's not happening just to Keiko. It's happening to everyone around her. It is happening um, to people in her next door. It's happening to people down the street. It's happening to people everywhere, you know, in other countries. It is happening whether you are as ambitious and driven as Keiko is, and it's happening if you have no ambitions in life whatsoever, uh, which is just terrifying. It's horrifying. And, you know, everything in When a Woman Ascends the Stairs boils down to a man. And I think, you know, it, it kind of gets at this idea that even when, you know, when you think about something like the Bechdel test, uh, you know, two women in a movie, two named women in a movie, two named women that talk to each other in a movie, and two named women that talk to each other in a movie about something that isn't a man, there's always a lot of, uh, I've seen some people interpret the different distinction between talking to each other about, talking to each other and talking to each other about something that's not a man uh, in a lot of different ways. You know, if you're talking about getting married, does that count as talking about a man? Uh, because, in effect, if you're marrying someone, you could be talking about a man. Uh, if you're talking about having a child, does that 
you know, is that a conversation that talks about a man? Uh, and, and, you know, I, I don't necessarily agree with it, uh, or at least using the system in that way, the, the scale in that way for what that's worth. But I think it's a worthy conversation to have. And this movie is kind of the movie version of that, where every single line of dialogue, you know, feels like you, you draw a line from it and it ultimately ends up back with a man. And and that's, you know, it's frustrating. It, it's got to be frustrating. It's, it's uh, pretty disappointing. And so I, I think this is a dour movie. It has no... Uh, you know, it's not trying to fool you into thinking that light thing can, things could be better. It's kind of just turning a turning a lens onto society and saying this is what it's like. Period. And you know, that's kind of it. It. I I, I almost feel as though there is no. I almost feels as if the movie is trying to say that a woman can't ascend the stairs, uh, but that would r- probably require a different phrasing from the title. Um, so, yeah, I personally, I, I think it's a pretty great movie. It, it's a great commentary and and lens on on society and and how that works i think it has some pretty incredible performances specifically from takamine uh but you know i I couldn't pass by without mentioning nakadai but of course but you know masayaki masayuki mori and reiko dan and daisuke kato and the rest of the cast are all all great uh when a woman ascends the stairs my number two with an 85 which brings us to our number one top film that I saw in April, uh, and I happened to see it f- on the first day of April. Uh, it's 179 minutes long, so three hours. Saw a lot of long movies this uh, this this month. A lot of them for the scavenger hunt. It is from 1980. My summary: A petty thief bearing a resemblance to a feudal lord assumes his position when he dies. I gave it a 95. And it has an 88% on Rotten Tomatoes. And this is Kagemusha, directed by Akira Kurosawa, starring Tatsuya Nakadai, and Takashi Shimura, and Tsutomo Yamazaki, Jinpachi Netsu, among others. It's uh, it's Akira Kurosawa, so you know that you know lends itself to to a lot of pedigree. It's Tatsuya Nakadai, who, as you know, one of my favorites. He was in the top two films of this month. And it features a plot that I think is fairly simple. You know, I've seen a lot of movies where you have uh, someone of petty, poor circumstances and someone of well, well-off well circumstances swap places. One takes over for the other. They are used interchangeably. One rises. You know, a lot of movies have used that trope in the past. And, you know, a, you, when you hear that Akira Kurosawa is making a movie like that, and it's one of his later movies in his career, um, 
you know, it's that kind of thing where he's the he's the type of director where if he signs on to do a movie and you know, it doesn't seem like the type of movie he would do or at the very least it doesn't seem like a movie that um it feels like a movie that he's better than, I guess, for lack of a a better terminology. Um, not that he's, uh, you know, better than anything, but it, I don't know. It just it feels like it could have been a movie that I don't know. Uh, on the very basic of levels, you you have to assume that you know if it's a Scorsese or or a Spielberg or a Kurosawa that. He's got something in mind. He's got something planned. He he has expectations. He's got a really great idea. He wouldn't he wouldn't have gone gone to the, to a to a an idea a trope like this if he couldn't have used it to great effect. Um, I think of things like like the Toy Story franchise. You know the you know unlike some of the other uh, you know like Cars. Uh, I trust Pixar not to go back to that franchise unless they know they're going to make a movie that's worthy of it. And, you know, people will may, may quibble and argue about the quality of Toy Story 4. I think it's great, and I think it was it's a more than worthy story to have told been told. And I think the same is true here with Kurosawa and Kagamusha. Uh, it takes a very simple idea, stretches it out to three hours puts the the idea in the hands of Tatsuya Nakadai and you just you watch him just do magic I, that's really the best way I can describe it it's my favorite you know I've seen Nakadai in, in quite a few films now and it's my favorite performance of his uh, is this one in Kagemusha uh, you know, and he's in one of my absolute favorite movies of all time, in Harakiri, Seven Samurai, Ran, High and Low, Yojimbo, Sanjuru, Kwaidan, uh, you know, the, the Human Condition films, which are his and his alone. This is my favorite performance of his. He gets to do double duty uh, for a portion of the film. And the, the just, you know, it's it's... For him and for Kurosawa, the ability that they had to just kind of figure out a way to create this epic tapestry um, around one character where a lot of the scenes, you know, I would say about 75-80% of the movie is specifically about uh, Nakadai's Kagemusha, the Shadow Warrior. And so little of the movie is given to the other, you know, the surrounding characters. And yet that's, I, I don't want it to be, I want even less of the movie to be given to them. I, you know, I feel as though I can understand the entire, you know, world around uh, Kagemusha without ever seeing another character besides Nakadai. And the movie... It's, I don't know, it's really tough to say. It's not a movie that really breaks a lot of new ground. It, you know, it looks amazing. It has beautiful cinematography. The, the, um, the production is, is incredible. Uh, the stunts look fantastic. The, the costume work and, you know, even outside of Nakadai, I think the performances are all really strong. There's never, you know, a weak link there to, you know, kind of poke at. 
and it just it does so many things so right that even if some of the elements feel a little straightforward um you don't i don't regret it you know i i would kind of compare it to say lincoln and i i i compare it to lincoln because both are movies that i think even even if you had no knowledge of who lincoln was you get about 20 minutes into that movie and i think it seems pretty straightforward as to where it's going uh, and if you do know who Lincoln was, then, you know, you know where it's going from the beginning. Uh, and I think Kagamusha is very similar in that I think about 20, 30 minutes into the movie, you could probably map out the major plot points of the rest of the film and it hits them probably when you expect it to. And so this is a case and, and I think it's really difficult to distinct. I, I think it's a very thin, fine line to walk there's a difference between being a predictable movie, a predictable and, and therefore boring movie, and being a movie that does what it's expected of, does what is expected of it, um, but does it so well that you're still in awe by what's happening. And, you know, I think there are other examples of this, like little, like uh, Greta Gerwig's Little Women, I think is a film that does something to that effect, where this is a story that we've seen a lot of, a lot of times before, but she does it so well and in a unique and creative way that we still know all the plot points, we still know, you know, there was this, the, you know, the ending, and yet it's great because of the thing the you know the the manner in which it's given to us i would you know put a star is born from 2018 in the same category and i think kagemusha belongs alongside both of them uh and and you know in fact above them in terms of quality because it you know you 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 see the end coming you see the storyline and where it's going to end and it still it still hits it hits hard and and without remorse it doesn't lessen the blow be just because you know it's going to come and i think that is largely in part uh due to uh kurosawa and nakadai and and the pairing that they formed for this movie it's a powerful very shakespearean story uh that deserves uh to be seen and and you know i watched um desu well, what is it uh dersu uzala uh, within a couple of days of kagemusha and you know that's the one that got oscar nominations you know that one got a lot of recognition it won best foreign language film um at the oscars you know, it won every award it was up for, according to IMDb. And I look at Kagemusha, and it was nominated, but did not win. <laughs> um, it was nominated at the Golden Globes, did not win. Uh, nominated at the BAFTAs. Uh, one costume, one direction, did not win film. Uh, and But, you know, I think... And I don't think, you know, you can't have one without, you need one and not the other or, or whatever the situation. But 
I, I think for me, Kagemusha is is the much more is going to you know I'm going to remember so much more about this movie than I will about Dursu Uzala. Uh, so much more about this performance from Nakadai. So much more about the the rise and fall of this character. The you know it's like you might expect. It's you know you're being thrust into a position that you're in no way prepared for, and so you have to pick it up as you go along. And then you get really good at it, and then you like doing it, and then you don't want to stop doing it, and then. You know, because of the situation that you're in and because of the path that you're on, you have to do things a certain way. And then it becomes an inevitable, you know, collision with something you probably don't want to have to do. And that's this movie. And it takes you on this ride and you just kind of feel engrossed and and lifted by it uh, in in a way that very few movies, I think, are able to pull off. Um, So... Yeah, that that the ending scene in in of Kage Musha, uh, the character specifically, I, I not completely remembering. It's been a while. Uh, if if there's a mo- if there's any sort of epilogue sequence after the character's final moment, but the final scene with Kage Musha in it is is just perfect and uh, gut wrenching. It is a very very rough scene and and painful in fact painful so highly recommend highly recommend kagemusha that is my number one i'll run down my top 10 one more time starting with number 10 sorcerer one-eyed jacks swallow casa de lava the adventures of prince ahmed jean dielman 23 quad de commerce 1080 brussels woman in the dunes never rarely sometimes always when a Woman Ascends the Stairs, and Kage Musha. Those are my top 10 movies from April 2020 that I saw for the first time. Thank you for listening to today's episode. It does mean a lot. Uh, again, apologies that it didn't come out on Friday, but I got it out on Monday, so I'm getting a little bit better. Uh, if you'd like to find more episodes, you can find them on iTunes, Stitcher, places where podcasts can be found. You can also find all the episodes on circleoffilm.com, including a bunch of other things. If you'd like to find me, I'm on Twitter at Circle of Film. I am on Letterboxd at Circle of Film. And I am, uh, you can email me at circleoffilm at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, like it, rate it, review it, subscribe to it, tell somebody about it, or listen. Listening is the most important element. But if you are so inclined, uh, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash circleoffilm. And, of course, I have to thank Brian for being such a wonderful and supportive patron of the show. It does mean a lot, and uh, I'm very, very appreciative of, of that support. Thank you for listening, and as always, have a week. Without a trace, nothing's gone forever, only out of place. So long, farewell, oh, what I'll be to say. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So long.